Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which the angels long to look. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Through the fall, we're asking, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And in order to ask that question, we're looking at the life of Peter. Well, why Peter? As Zach pointed out really well last week, Peter is, of course, called to follow Jesus. Jesus reaches out to him as a fisherman. And as we examine how the life of Peter unfolds, we see that early on he rejects Jesus. As Jesus discloses, part of my story is that I must go and die. Uh, Peter says, no, that can't happen. And Jesus has to rebuke him. And then further on down the line, as we approach the crucifixion, Peter will deny Jesus. He will curse him and separate himself from him. And at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus will approach Jesus will approach Peter and restore him in a very loving and compassionate way. And the next time we see Peter is in Acts 2, when he's preaching to all of the dispersion or diaspora that has gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, proclaiming that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. And in the beginning of Acts, he becomes indeed what Jesus had prophesied, that he would be a rock on which the church would be built. The funny thing about Peter is we don't know nearly as much as we'd like to know about him. Uh, after he's released miraculously from prison in the early part of Acts, he disappears. Presumably, he's gone into hiding uh, to hide from authorities. And one of the interesting things about his epistle, this letter that he's written to the churches, is he's writing to churches that he seems to have a, a relationship with, and he's writing predominantly to areas that Paul never traveled to. So presumably, Peter is dialoguing with the churches that he has forged, that he flees from Jerusalem 
in the midst of the story of the very early church in Acts and begins planting churches and proclaiming the gospel and establishing it in these places. And now he writes to these churches, which are coming under persecution for identifying with Jesus. He writes to encourage them, and as one who has has tread this path, he writes to them saying, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. I got that call. You have received the call to follow him. Let me, let me write to you and encourage you in that process and explain to you what it really looks like to follow him. And so we're sitting down uh, with someone who's been down that road. And, of course, Peter is also an apostle. An apostle means that Peter is called and sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He comes with all authority. So it would be foolish to discount any of his words. But what I'm trying to point out to you that Peter is also someone, a very real person with very real foibles, who has something to teach us. My girls uh, want to learn knitting, right? And so how do they learn knitting? Well, they sit with people who know how to knit. Do we want to follow Jesus? Well, let's sit with someone who knows how to follow Jesus. Where is Peter going to start for us? He's going to start with the big picture, right? In verse 1, he says things that are so uh, big and important that you could almost, we could almost stop there, uh, but we won't. But look at verse 1 with me to see what the bigness is I am talking about. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in so on and so forth. Well, first of all, just in that very short, tight sense, Peter has told you what his church is and what you need to know about your relationship with God and your relationship to the world. Did you see it? Number one, you are elect. You are chosen. God has approached you before you would approach God. And in this, there is great privilege. I remember standing against the brick wall of our school growing up in elementary school and waiting right, to be picked for the kickball team. Of course, the star athletes go first, and then you kind of hit the general middle, but you didn't want to fall in that lower quarter. right? You wanted to be picked somewhere respectable. Isn't life so much about being picked? Being picked for the right social circle, by the group of friends that you want to be a part of, or by the right school, or by the right job, or by the right spouse. We spend much of our time desiring to be picked, and yet when we pause for a moment and realize that the Creator, who has become man, has chosen you and approached you in love to call you out of darkness... That should all give us a bit of pause. He didn't have to pursue you. There's not really anything in it for him. And yet, because he is love, he has chased you. I find it interesting that some people uh, have a very hard time with this. Sometimes I ask people to say, you know, can you say that you are chosen, that God loves you so much that he has chosen you? And some people are, are funny. They say, well, yeah, sure, of course he has. Right? They have no problem conceiving that they've been chosen by God because they think, of course, God would want me. But other people who find it very difficult to believe that God loves them, they'll start, uh, I am, and they'll pause. They'll hesitate because to utter the words, I am chosen by God, communicates such a degree of love and they feel so unworthy of love that it's, it's something that's very difficult to articulate. But you must realize and even say to yourself this morning, I am chosen. 
not because of something you've done, but simply because God loves you. And God desires to make something of your life that you would not have made for your own. But to be uh, chosen or elect does not come without its consequences. Right? What's the next part of the verse? That uh, the churches, those who are chosen, are exiles. To be chosen is to be, in a sense, removed from this world as a citizen of this world and made a citizen of the kingdom of God so that this is no longer your home. What Peter is doing when he talks about the ESV translates it the dispersion, it's often referred to as the diaspora. It's a very Jewish term. After the Babylonian captivity in the Old Testament, Jews were scattered all over the Mediterranean world. There were, there were as many Jews in Alexandria, Egypt, or in the north of the Mediterranean as there were in Jerusalem. Right? Even today, there are more Jews in New York City than there are in Jerusalem. And the diaspora was a word to refer to uh, the Jews that had been scattered outside of the homeland. In other words, they were, they were aliens and strangers and foreigners removed from their homeland. And what Peter is doing is using this as a metaphor, saying those who are called, elect by God in Jesus Christ, now exist as diaspora. No matter where you live, you are not living in your homeland. The United States of America is not your home. Texas is not your home. You're strangers and aliens in this place. We often tend to forget that, not to think about it. If that were true... You know, goodness, I wouldn't need to be comfortable here. Right? If my homeland is actually somewhere else, and I'm guaranteed that I'm going back to that home, how much time and energy would I invest in really being comfortable here? Or making this feel as if it's my home? Not only that, but if I really believe this, I would be very careful not to be consumed by the culture in which I exist. Right? If I am being told that I am in exile, I am a stranger, I'm a sojourner, a traveler in a foreign country, and this, the, the ways in which this foreign country lives are not my ways. But I know that the more time I spend in this foreign culture, the more time I am in danger of becoming more and more like it, unless I am intentionally working not to become like it. If you aren't intentional, I guarantee you will assimilate. There is no alternative. I moved to Texas from the Northeast. And so that was a funny sneeze. It almost sounded like a comment on the Northeast. <laughs> Thankfully, it came from a child. <laughs> we came down and we, we celebrated being in Texas culture, right? I bought boots and uh, went to the state fair. And we even started saying y'all, which I had never said in my life. But I think that's actually a pretty handy term. But there was a day, right, like a frog in boiling water. I've never tried this, but I've been told that if you put a frog in water and you heat it up slowly, it will boil to death, right? Because it doesn't, for some reason, it doesn't sense the slowly changing temperature. If you drop it in boiling water, it'll hop out, right? Like a frog in boiling water, my kids started coming home and they had dropped their G's. I said, whoa. We love Texas, we love living here, but you are not permitted to drop your G's, right? Going became going, right? Fixing became fixing, right? So as, it, as if it's negotiable, we're not there. They started not saying their G's. 
We are assimilating too much. We are adopting too many norms. We must retain our G's. Right? But it shows you the danger, the ease at which you can be caught up in the culture in which you exist. You exist in a ridiculously oversexed, materialistic, and narcissistic culture. Are you wary and intentionally running in the opposite direction, or are you a frog in boiling water? Right? And boys and girls, what do I mean by those terms? We are a people who are committed to pleasure and reward through money and possessions, and that we are the most important person in the room. And as long as we live by those rules and those priorities that exist around us, we alienate ourselves from God. But to the degree that we remember that we are elect and as elect we are exiles, we pursue faithfulness to God. Now this is, of course, a very difficult proposition. How does one actually remember? How does one survive in the midst of this? Well, for Peter... He knows he's writing to those who, through trial, through persecution, are facing the temptation to leave the church, to either return to Judaism or go back to their Gentile gods. And so he says to them, or wants to begin with salvation. You have to understand salvation if you have any hope of navigating your status as elect by God and an exile in this world. So what does he have to teach us about salvation? Well, our salvation is nothing less than a Trinitarian act. Now, Peter doesn't have the word Trinity and isn't thinking about it, but this is one of the passages that the church will look to to understand the nature of the Trinity. Because look at our salvation. According to verse 2, it's by the foreknowledge of God the Father. God has decided on you long before you decided on him. It's done in the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit is committed to making you holy according to God's purposes. And what is your salvation for? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. The purpose of your salvation is for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, very small sections of the church, I think, really view salvation in that way. Salvation is for comfort. It's for the provisions that we need. Salvation is to avoid hell. Salvation is given so that my life will have meaning and purpose. And while all of those are true, they put the cart before the horse because they all do not, those things that we mentioned do not produce obedience. They all flow out of obedience. Salvation is for obedience. If you put anything else in the place of obedience, prior to obedience, the whole thing gets messed up. It begins with your obedience. That's what your salvation is for, not for other things that might come uh, before it. We might ask you, children, why are you obedient to your parents? Are you obedient because you believe that they have much more life experience and desire the best for you, and you decide that even though you may not understand it, you will do what they say? Or are you obedient simply because you want what they will give you, and you want to avoid discipline and punishment? Is that what drives your obedience? Well, we could ask the same thing of all the grown-ups in their relationship with God. Is your obedience something that you think simply gets you what you want? Or is your obedience something that is truly about 
realizing this is what you've been called to be. And yes, out of it, everything good will flow. But obedience can't be simply a means to get what you want. Uh, I knew a man, we'll call this man Phil, and he was, he was in the church and he uh, inherited a significant amount of money. And the money went to cars and vacations and to uh, boxes of high-end wine. The money also went uh, to any time he was part of a, a fundraiser that involved a social group of which he wanted to be a part, uh, lots of his money went there as well. But his money never went to the church. He could have done amazing things for India, and he chose not to. And so, eventually, the person who was running kind of a risky investment thing fell apart, and he lost all his money. What do you think his reaction was? Why would God let me suffer like this? Why would God take away all of my money? He must not love me because he's made me to go through this. God took what was his. And what this man had clearly forgotten that that did belong to God. The obedience that he feigned in church wasn't real obedience. It was something that he thought would guarantee the security of his money. It raises the question of what is the nature of our obedience and how can we really aspire to real obedience? Again, Peter wants us to camp out and wrestle with this idea of salvation. Do we really understand it? He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everything following that is actually one run-on sentence. In other words, Peter has this massive praise of God that he begins in worship, and from that he says three things about salvation. First, salvation is accomplished. It's already done. Look at verse 3a. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Salvation is done. It's yours. Your inheritance is established in heaven. It's being kept for you by God as a result of the work of Jesus Christ. Fantastic. Salvation is past. We can put our feet up. But then Peter goes on to say that salvation is ongoing. You can look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. This inheritance being kept in heaven is being guarded by what? It's being guarded through faith. Well, whose faith? God doesn't exhibit faith. It's through your faith. That this salvation that has occurred is actually still being worked out in the midst of your life. It's not something that is terminal, but is appropriated by faith. No biblical author in the entire word advocates that there is any notion of salvation apart from the expression of faith, which always produces works. To segment that out or to divide as if you can have salvation or faith or works apart from one or the other is to misappropriate the New Testament. Are you actually working out your salvation by a faith that exhibits good works? Remember, what's our salvation for? It's for obedience to Jesus Christ. So our salvation is past. Our salvation is ongoing. But then Peter also says it's yet to come. Also in verse 5, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
Wait, I thought salvation had already occurred. I thought our inheritance was already won. Peter says, well, yes, but it's not fully revealed. It's something that is past. It is something that is present. It is something that is future. And we're reminded that every vision of the future in the Bible, the end of time, is a vision of us being weighed by what we did or did not do as an expression of our faith. As an expression of our obedience unto the one that we call Lord. Our salvation is cosmic. It encompasses everything. From our past to our future, we exist in this place of living out what it means to be elect by God and an exile in this world. That road is winding, is it not? Look at verses 6 and 7. This is your road. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why does God require that our faith be tested? This is more precious than gold. If you apply fire to gold, it's going to melt and you lose it. Faith, when it's tried, is refined. It becomes stronger. It becomes greater. And certainly we don't need to camp out here because we spent all summer looking at the book of Job in which we learn that through trial we may often begin to think that we know God, but it is only in trial that we become awake and understand what faith is and pursue God for God himself rather than for what God grants to us. But the problem is that in these trials is when we like to wander. This is the issue that Peter is taking up, that the churches to whom he is writing, in the midst of their trials, they want to wander. They want to leave. They want to go back to things that are more comfortable. And it's always in the midst of trial that you must confront the question, is your salvation for the obedience of Jesus Christ? If it is for something else, then you will not make it through the trial. Only a pursuit of obedience unto Jesus Christ is something that will help you to remain faithful in the midst of that trial. Sometimes I'm amazed at the distance that exists between my own parenting of my children and my relationship with God, right? And if you don't have kids, you'll still get this. You were a kid. Parents don't hesitate to tell their children, right, that just because Tommy smashed your Legos with a hammer does not mean that you get to smash his Legos with a hammer. Just because you've been treated poorly by someone does not mean that you get to treat that person poorly. We don't hesitate to tell our kids that just because you're having a bad day does not mean that you get to walk around this house and treat everybody like garbage, right? This is, now that we have a teenager, this has become a new refrain in our house, right? Just because you don't feel good or are having a lousy day or don't like the way the world is treating you doesn't mean that you can walk over everybody. We don't hesitate to tell our kids that just because uh, I, as a parent, have not given you what you want doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. You aren't excused from obedience simply because you haven't gotten what you want. Right? In parenting, this is a no-brainer. Right? We all say this. We all live in this place. Right? And then we turn around to God, and it's as if we never lived or understood these rules. It's as if we never, they never left our lips. Right? When we're offended by others, we treat them as if God is not their father, nor ours. 
When we are disappointed by our circumstances, we punish the people around us. When God does not grant us what we want, then we give ourselves permission to sin. And in each and every of those three ways, we throw obedience to Christ out the window and decide that I don't care that I'm elect and I certainly don't want to be in exile. I find more pleasure and fulfillment in the materialism and narcissism of this world than I do in pursuing Christ through trial. That's a fork in the road. It's a fork in the road in every trial. It's a fork in the road in life, and it's a fork in the road for the churches to whom Peter is writing. As we begin our consideration of 1 Peter, right? Weigh and think about, pray about what Peter says in verse 1, which is that you are elect and you are in exile. That's your relationship to God and your relationship to the world. And if you remember those two basic identities, you will go far in obedience to Jesus Christ. You exist in a foreign land, and by existing in a foreign land that runs by the rulers and authorities of this present darkness, you're going to always face trial. It is inevitable. So in the midst of this trial, will your salvation result in obedience? Do you suffer in your relationship with God? Do you feel that he's distant? Sometimes God decides intentionally to be distant. But I would say pastorally, eight or nine times out of ten, God feels distant because you are disobedient. God feels like he's left the building because you have left the building. Is your salvation for obedience to Christ? Understand that you cannot work on your relationship to God apart from obedience any more than a spouse can work on their marriage while engaged in an affair. It is equally as ridiculous. If you are committing idolatry, worshiping other things, and complaining about your relationship with God, is your salvation for obedience unto Jesus Christ? Where do you need to repent and pursue that obedience? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you that you have worked, that it has required the entire, all three persons of the Godhead to effect. We thank you that you love us and choose us and rescue us and call us to obedience, which is the best thing for us. But we acknowledge to you that it is so difficult to obey. It is so easy to fall during trial. Would you please continue to extend the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ? Would you help us to be faithful? Would you help us to pursue obedience? Would you help us to obey even when it hurts and doesn't make sense to us and costs us something? And in that, uh, would you help us to know that out of that obedience comes life? We ask for your grace in this. In Christ's name, amen.